Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we're doing something slightly different. We have with us not one, but two amazing guests with us who are Matt and Robbie, the two co-founders of Surgery Hero. And before founding Surgery Hero, they were medical doctors, worked in a big health tech startup before launching something of their own. So it's a massive pleasure to have you both on the show today. How are you guys? Welcome to the show. Pleasure. Good to be here. Thank you. Very good, Abdul. Thanks. So we've never had two guests. I don't know how to start. So I'm just going to go in alphabetical order. Matt, you're up first. So we know you guys are building Surgery Hero, which is kind of a digital clinic to help people before and after surgery. So we'll come on to that. But what we really want to do, we want to take it all the way back to a young Matt, a young Robbie, who are embarking on this big journey of becoming doctors. So tell us, Matt, about the motivations, you know, to study medicine, medical school, and kind of, you know, we'll go into Robbie afterwards. Sure. Um... So my, my initial interest in medicine really stemmed from uh, my love for the sciences, uh, particularly chemistry. Um, both my grandparents were chemistry teachers. Uh, and my grandfather actually always wanted to be a medic, but he, his family didn't have the funds or money available for him to go to university. Uh, but I went through school, loved the sciences. And then my uncle, who was an anesthetist in Belfast, took me on work experience. Uh, to the Royal Victoria Hospital. And on my first day, in my first couple of hours, my experience was uh, in theatres. And oh, it wow. was watching paediatric neurosurgery. And it was quite, I mean, it was an unbelievable experience. I remember it vividly um, and thought that was that was pretty cool. So that's why I initially decided to pursue a career in medicine. Oh, wow. Amazing. Can you imagine the first exposure and work experiences, paediatric neurosurgery? Um, <laughs> I've never seen anything as cool since, really, actually. It's, it's hard to top that. I don't think the whole medical would live up to that. They can get through whole medical and not, not have an experience like that. <laughs> uh, Robbie, over to you. What kind of drove you to study medicine and, you know, the motivations behind that? Sure, yeah. I, I actually don't think I ever really made a choice between two different subjects. I, I wanted to be a doctor from, from day one. I can, I can remember my granny maybe suggesting it as when I was a very young child and I just, just went with it. Um, a bit like Matt, I was always interested in the sciences. I never, I never read any novels or fiction growing up. I was always reading science books. And I remember being seven or eight reading, um, this horrible science, blood bones and body bits, which was about human biology. and just absolutely loved it. And, and I think from, from then I, I was completely set from, from what was a very young age and, never really deviated. I think it was a bit of a shock to, to my family when I then took a step out of clinical medicine because it had been all, all <laughs> I wanted to do. Okay, I can imagine. Um, but it goes to, goes to show kind of like the expectations, what you think you're going to be doing at 18, 19 to where you are now and what you're doing now. Tell us briefly, kind of, you get through med school, tell us how it felt to kind of be on the shop floor, kind of your first few days as a junior doctor, you know, did it live up to expectations? How was it like? The first few days as a doctor, I think it was probably terrifying. I can't remember exactly. Um, I was in, in New York City Hospital. Um, so, I mean, that, that was quite a, I mean, you're well, well supported there. So you never mm. felt like you're alone. There was always SHOs about to help you. Um, but it was probably a very terrifying experience those first couple of days anyway. I, I, I can remember my Pretty clear. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> like, I remember, oh, okay, fair enough. Um, and my, my first job ever actually was as an F1 was in uh, the emergency department, which is quite unusual. Um, but this mm. was at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital where they 
quite often do things a little bit differently. Um, and I absolutely loved it. You know, they, they were having to send me home sometimes because I was having so much fun. Um, it was a great team, very supportive seniors. And I got to see a little bit of everything, obviously being emergency medicine. Um, I, I felt like I'd, I'd well and truly landed on something that I wanted to do. And, and, I, and I loved it mm. for, well, I, st I, still, I still do love clinical medicine, even though I'm not doing it at the moment. I think, I think you're, you're like the first person I've spoken to in a, in a few weeks that said they used to love working in ED and loves clinical medicine. Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone at the moment is, is, is hating it. Um, so this is where things probably start to get interesting for the both of you. And I think for a lot of our listeners, they'll be keen to know at what stage when you are loving kind of practicing medicine, kind of the impact, seeing patients, do you start thinking, I want to leave. I want to do something slightly different. I want to take a step outside of medicine. Um, tell us the rationale, what happened in that phase. Yeah, so I, I mean, for me, I did my I did my foundation years one and two in New York and then Newcastle. Um, even, at, even at that time, I was doing entrepreneurial stuff on the side. So, I, I mean, I, we were, I mean, I took it upon myself to, to work on an app that calculated, you know, fluid calculation for the pediatric patient, another app that, had determined uh, contraceptive options for women, um, and throughout throughout my time in those couple of years, I was I was looking for something else. Um, mm -hmm. I I didn't then choose a specialty to pursue. Uh, I worked for then three years as a locum in various hospitals across the UK in all sorts of specialties, um, and then with my other co-founder, not Robbie Luke. I started up a prop tech business on the side and finally made the, the leap uh, filling into the world of entrepreneurship. Mm. Just before we move on, Matt, the question I want to ask and kind of ask to all the kind of entrepreneurs, do you feel that you weren't fulfilled with the clinical work as much as you were with the kind of entrepreneurship stuff? Did it, was it a bigger itch to scratch? Um, I mean... It's not, it's not that I disliked the job in medicine. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I enjoyed some of the challenges within hospital um, and the day-to-day -day work. And uh, it, was, you know, it was good having a good team around you and were helping and caring people. I remember I'm caring by nature. So, I mean, it suited me mm -hmm. on that front. But w when I moved into and started that first, first proper business, I knew that that was... I knew that that was right. For okay. Um, and, I, and I loved that. Like Robbie says, you know, Rob, Robbie stayed late into the evenings working as a doctor. I mean, for, me, for me, I wasn't doing that whilst I was at hospital. <laughs> but I definitely did do that when I started my first business. I mean, I worked all day and all night to make that work. Mm. Looking, looking back, right, into your, your journey, right, would you say a trait that entrepreneurs have is that they want to face problem where the the answer is unknown in a sense. So in medicine, right, a lot of a lot of it has answers. You can eventually find guidelines, pathways, scans, and get the answer. Do you think as entrepreneurs there is this there is this itch where you don't know what's on the other side of whatever you're about to do, and that itch is sort of you have to scratch it. Um, what is it about entrepreneurship that gave you that confidence to say, I really want to go into this sphere, and I really need to scratch this itch? I think I think definitely. I mean, the mm. the, the, the unknown of the day to days activities is something that I loved, and the, the problems problem solving element to it as well is 
something I relished. Uh, whereas in mm. medicine, it's almost everything is de defined how one should care for an individual. I mean, we all have our standard of care for X, Y, and Z. Whereas yeah. there's almost no one set path to having a successful yeah. company. Um, yeah, it's very individual Absolutely. to you and your company and how you how you are successful. Going back to Robbie, you know, you, you describe yourself as loving clinical medicine, staying back late. How on earth do you then get the seed of an idea you want to take a step out of clinical medicine? So I don't know if, if the word is what went wrong, what happened, what was the epiphany moment? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I say Matt and I are, are, are very, very different in terms of the, the path we, we took to get here. Prior to, to leaving clinical medicine, I would have said there wasn't an entrepreneurial bone in my body. <laughs> it, was, it was really not, not something I'd ever thought about. Um, but I'll, I'll be honest, you know, I, I love I the clinical practice. Um, I love the science behind it. What I, I did, you know, I'll, I'll put myself in, in the, the bucket of people who experienced burnout from their day to day. Um, mm. I think it, going from my mid twenties to my late twenties, um, it really, the, the, the impact of night shifts and weekends and, and, and late shifts really, really changed. Um, and I, I basically, I, I was looking for a better work-life balance. Now, I'm not sure that becoming an entrepreneur is really the right step to take <laughs> if you're looking for work. work. Um, but essentially, I, I thought I was three years into my specialty training. Um, to go back to the beginning of another specialty was a bit daunting. I didn't really want to go back and do the SHO journey all over again. Um, mm. So I looked for other opportunities where, where I had transferable skills. Um, at that point, digital health was, especially in London, was really starting to take off and I had um, a friend, our, our co-founder, um, Luke, who was working at Huma, uh, then called Meadowpad, and they were looking for, for um, clinically minded people and, and I applied and got the role um, and very quickly had to, to learn a whole different skill set. But it was nice mm. to be able to do a job where my, my medical knowledge was put to good use. It wasn't like starting all over again in an entirely different career. Um, mm. And yeah, I guess one thing, I, I enjoyed that job. I enjoyed kind of learning a bit more about business and entrepreneurship and, and Sergio Hero was, was the next step along. But, but certainly I, I would cautious your listeners, <laughs> caution your listeners, if you're looking for a better work-life balance and starting your own company, it's probably not. But <laughs> I kind of get the transition. You kind of went into another company, but it was very close to associated with clinical medicine. It wasn't something totally different, kind of yeah. out of in the wind. Um, was it in humour that you, you, you met Matt for the first time? As you, you can maybe hear, Matt and I are from a similar part of the world. And yeah. Okay. Belfast and the surrounding area. And Matt and I actually went to the same university, which is Queen's University, Belfast. Um, and that was a couple of years older than me. I think we, we were acquaintances, but um, mm. we, we didn't really know each other that well. And Luke, who's not been mentioned a couple of times in the podcast, um, was a good friend of mine from university. We, 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 he was a, a, a law student. Um, and he also knew Matt from, so he was kind of, he's kind of like the linchpin. There, there are four, there are four founders. We haven't mentioned Adam yet, he's the fourth. Um, but Luke, Luke was brought to, to Meadowpath by Matt. Luke brought me there and then we all went there and, and, and oh. well, a while down the line decided to do a real thing. So before we kind of go what happened next, Matt, what was your first impressions of Robbie? <laughs> what are you honest trying to do? Here, here I am. <laughs> be, be honest. <laughs> We want the good stuff. 
<laughs> I, I always, I mean, I always describe Robbie as the clever doctor. I think <laughs> I'm one of those doctors that probably just scraped by through exams. Um, <laughs> he is, uh, he's a perfectionist. He's very diligent. Um, and I mean, I knew if we were going to start a company that I couldn't be chief medical officer because my clinical knowledge isn't that good. And we needed someone yeah. like Robbie there. Uh, so <laughs> we pulled, we pulled Robbie into the company and, um, yeah, it's, he's been instrumental from a, from a product point of view and, and a coaching point of view. Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, I can remember the first year at university, um, as I said, we, we, we didn't hang out that much, but I remember meeting Matt and he was this big, gangly, um, cheerful guy with spiky hair. He was always laughing. And oh. making everyone else laugh. Um, <laughs> I nearly spat um, my drink out. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, the, 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 Matt has retained that optimism that he always had. He's very energetic, um, always looking on, on the bright side. And I think we complement each other very well in that regard. And <laughs> sometimes we <laughs> have to bring Matt down to earth. And Matt's sometimes the guy who, who injects a bit of life in, into the company. Um, you know, it's the, the, the answer that Matt gave earlier on about loving the uncertainty and loving, mm. loving not knowing what's coming next. I'm the opposite. You know, I want to try and control <laughs> as much as I can. Um, so it's good to have that balance. I, I think if we were, if, if it's a team of people just like me or a team of people just like me, we probably wouldn't get too far. It reminds me of me and Ams, you know, Ams was like top of the class and I was on the bottom of the class and kind of met in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, on that point, um, on that point, right, as entrepreneurs, right, how important, tell us how important it is to have a good co-founding team, right? Um, that complements each other because a lot of people will sit there and say, I need someone who can do so-and-so and sometimes they can rush into it. Um, tell us what are the, the amazing bits about you guys on the team that complement each other? I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's important. I would say it's absolutely critical to, to yeah. have the right co-founders alongside you. Um, we have certainly had ups and downs. Um, mm. It helps to be, to be working with friends because there will be difficult moments um, yeah, but yeah, that, that, that balance is absolutely critical and not, not just the balance in terms of skill set, but in personalities. I second everything Robbie said there. I mean, especially in healthcare, it is so difficult. Um, and it's so complex that you need people with the varied skill set. I mean, Adam comes from a product, um, product background Luke from his barrister background. He's now an expert mm. in record regulatory and compliance, um, mm. Robbie with the clinical side. Um, and then myself, I come with some experience in, in, in raising capital and, mm -hmm. and, being, um, and it's all, it's all necessary. Um, and it's no, actually it required all four of us to get to this stage. I'd say. I agree with kind of the, the concept of the co-founding team and being super critical and working together just so you can take it and scale and grow. Well, at HEMA, I think Matt, you were kind of the clinical lead kind of had a team looking after people. The question is, you're in a stable role, you know, humor's super big. You're working with, seems like an amazing group of people. Why risk it all and go out into the wilderness and do your own thing? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I vouched after my last startup that I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> Most people do. <laughs> I mean, I think it was the other three that, that convinced me to okay. get on board and have another go um and and of course i'm 
driven by what if, what, what could, what could yeah. we do together? Um, and it was a little bit comfortable. We, I was too comfortable and I'm, and I'm too young to be comfortable. Uh, and I thought, but let's, let's, let's just go for it. And I am an entrepreneur at heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and my partner says, I'll never give that up. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's, it's just in me and I, and I needed to do it with the guys. So tell us about the, the, the origin, the founding story of Sergio Hero, who came up with the idea, kind of the, so what a lot of listeners are keen to hear is they have an idea. How do you make it something tangible? What were the first few steps idea to kind of market and the team and all of that fun stuff? Yeah, I, th- I think it all came about and it came about because of COVID um, mm-hmm. and the impact that COVID had on elective surgery, particularly here in the UK. Uh, all elective procedures are put on hold. Uh, waiting lists grew, grew as a result. People are made to wait longer uh, and people have more complications as a result. Um, what, what COVID also did was really shine a light on the waiting list, the idea of waiting for surgery um, and the fact that people were, were so inactive in the lead mm-hmm. of their procedure. Surgery here was all about being proactive, preparing for surgery, building resilience physically and mentally in the lead up to surgery. Um, and so the idea made total sense. We, we looked to the US in terms of, in terms of a solution, we looked to the US and how health coaching had been so effective in other areas of medicine. So there's companies that mm. popped up uh, like Vongo, Hinge Health, Omada, that had applied mm. health, coach, health coaching approach to different areas of healthcare, diabetes, uh, chronic, different chronic diseases, and had been so successful. Um, and so we thought, let's, let's apply health coaching to perioperative care. Um, it made sense in our minds, and, that, and that's what we've run. Um, I suppose just to say the, the waiting list right now in the UK is not at record levels. So there's over 7 million people on the waiting list. Oh, wow. And, you know, hospitals, healthcare providers, uh, insurers, employers are not doing enough to support individuals both before and after the operation uh, and need, mm. to, need to take more responsibility, really. Yeah, I agree with you. So when I was at F1, one of the rotational surgery, it felt as if the pre-op stuff, no one really cared about. You, you rock up to a clinic, you're fit to assess. And I know a lot of people were just fit to assess because of the sake of it, right? There was not an emphasis on, are you prepared, you know, mentally, physically? And then I think you guys helped with post-recovery as well. It was all about that moment in time when you're on the operating table. And then I don't know if you've done a surgical ward round a few days after, you know, can you, whatever, can you, any pain, can you open your bowels? <laughs> can you pass the water? All right, you off, off you go home and we never hear from them again. Um, the question is, how, so what solution are you bringing kind of to the table with Surgery Hero? How are you helping kind of prepare these patients perioperatively and post-recovery? Fundamentally, we, we are a health coaching solution. And um, it gets a bit complicated when, when we talk about ourselves being a digital clinic and, and use different language. But uh, the, the, the basis of what we do is health coaching. And I describe health coaching as the art of facilitating a person's active participation in managing their own health. A bit, bit of a mouthful, but it's about helping people look after themselves fundamentally. Um, and specifically in terms of surgery and the surgical journey, we, we can group people into where this in terms of risk factors. We've got um, non-modifiable risk factors like your age, your, your, um, your sex at birth, um, ethnicity in some cases. But when it comes to modifiable risk factors, things like sedentary behavior, pre-nutrition, sleep, and, and also the mental side of things, 
there is a lot that we can each be doing in order to optimize our, our minds and bodies ahead of the operation. Um, I, I describe it a lot like um, running a marathon. You know, you, you wouldn't wake up on the day of a marathon and just go out and do it um, without any prior preparation. But the, mm. the stress that your body goes through when running a marathon is actually comparable to, to what, what it goes through when having major surgery. Um, so I try to use that as an analogy to, to demonstrate the fact that there is a lot you can do in, in the weeks and months ahead. And we support that process. Um, now, we're all different. We all have different priorities in life. We all have different priorities in terms of health. And that's fundamentally what health coaching is all about. It's about helping people identify what's of greatest impact to them right now. And it may be that there are multiple things that we, that we can work on, but let's start with what's of greatest impact and we'll, we'll gently build in the rest as we move through yeah. the program. Um, and that's what we do in, in, in a nutshell, really. The, the, our health coaches are, are amazing. They're, they're all highly experienced and, and highly trained. Um, and the, the feedback that we get consistently is that they've, they've really, really helped people turn their lives around. And that's about preparing for surgery, but also the, the, the long-term benefit as well. Um, I think um, health coaching in general can have huge impact on people's lives. Robbie, how, how was, what was the first few days like when you were validating this? So this is absolutely incredible. I once was in A&E uh, working away and I came across this patient who was having, uh, going to have an elective procedure. And I remember they once told me, oh, I'm preparing for surgery. And I asked them, what, what do you mean I'm preparing? And they were saying, I'm losing weight, I'm dieting, I'm eating better. And I was just thinking, I was blown away by that moment. I was like, wow, you're one of few people who, who are not just saying, I'm waiting. They're saying, I'm preparing for surgery. So yeah. absolutely incredible. But tell us what were the first few days like, because products like this are, are very difficult, actually, to get out there, test, market, get patient feedback. Uh, tell us the first few days. Yeah, totally. So uh, I think we came up with the idea of supporting people through surgery, first of all. We hadn't really figured mm. out exactly how we were going to do that. Um, and one of the benefits of, of COVID was we each had a bit more time than we ordinarily would have done to, to read around it. And I think stuff. we all did. <laughs> yeah. so, um, I think, you know, the, the concept of health coaching to me was, was totally new when, when we first started talking about the, the general concept. I'd been working in the NHS at that stage for um, seven, eight years. And um, I had never really thought about this way of approaching consultations. Um, albeit most of what I did was, was in acute care. Um, but I'd never really thought about it. So the first thing I did was actually to start reading up on health coaching and to put myself through health coach training. And I did mm. that while still, so in, during that, that COVID period, I was still working part-time in hospital. Um, three or four days a week while we were trying to get um, surgery here up and running. So I put myself through the training. And as I was doing it, I was going back into hospital and, and, and testing it with patients in the real world. And I Amazing. realized that, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I look back on it now, I, I find it hard to believe, but you know, just small tweaks I made in my consultations that made a huge impact in terms of the rapport I was able to build with patients. And also that they're buying in terms of what, what I was telling and what, what would make a difference to their lives. So that, that was step one. And mm. um, we were fortunate enough to to raise some, some pre-seed funding to then put together an MVP, a first version of, of the app. Um, and for that, then for the next year, I, I coached everyone, all of, all of Surgery Hero members. Oh, wow. Of coaching. So I got I got hands-on experience of what it meant to actually try and yeah. deliver, not just the tech side of the, the product, but also the, the, the health coaching service. 
and mm. and it worked. We we had really good outcomes coming back. We had really good feedback coming back. And um, that that first year, we we did two small pilots with South Tees Hospital and, and Sherwood Forest Hospital, and mm. the the feedback from the clinicians was really positive as well. The, their their patients had already enjoyed the experience and, and benefited from it. And from there, then we started to, to think a bit bigger. So we hired Amazing. um our first first health coaches in addition to me last February, and we've been building the team since then. So it was very much mm -hmm. an incremental process and um, learning as we went. And we're still improving. There's still a lot we could be doing better, I think. Um, but it's yeah, I think it's about getting out there and, and trying it firsthand. Mm. Amazing. When when you're when you're building product like Surgery Hero, you believe in it, you're passionate and you are kind of an advocate and champion for it. When I think of surgeons, I don't want to kind of stereotype them. They're just kind of like straight to the point, you know, kind of knife to skin, get over and done with. And I can imagine for a lot of them, this health coaching, all of this fluff, they're not big advocates for it. They might not be big fans of it, right? You know, just want to get onto the operating table. They want to do what they need to do and get in and out, right? How do you change them into advocates? Or, you know, for the surgeons that are listening, what would you say to them about the importance of this? What would they would probably call fluff? I, well, I think I think it's a really important topic. Actually, um, if I'm having an operation, I want my surgeon to be laser focused on on doing surgery and to be spending his days and nights thinking about it, so he's going to do the best operation possible. Mm -hmm. um, it's mm -hmm. not always not always possible to, to do everything. So, for example, advocating for for the lifestyle side of things, taking time to speak to your to your patients about um, in, in a health coaching takes a bit longer take, take, um, typically longer consultations so I think that's fine um, it's that, that, that point of view is fine for surgeons to have it's incumbent on us to start educating them start educating the public at large as to mm -hmm. where health coaching comes in how we can benefit patients and their experience of healthcare um, and you know we, we have certainly come across surgeons who haven't really understood the concept you've never really thought that way but we haven't really encountered resistance to the idea mm -hmm. i think once we have time to, to speak with surgeons to educate them on what it's all about and to demonstrate the value it, it can bring and also improve the the, the journey for their patients then mm. invariably people are, are very receptive of the concept no yeah definitely. I, I think just to add to that as well i mean it's not just surgeons i mean it's you know all, all sorts of clinicians are, are, are sorts Many are non-believers in the concept of perioperative yeah. care and the value that it brings. I mean, mm. we, we are building our body of evidence to convince those individuals what is our mm. impact uh, from, a, yeah. from a length of stay point of view, readmissions, complications point of view, and, and putting that in front of them. Um, so that, that's, that's def definitely important. Um, yeah. No, uh, I agree. And I think kind of just raising awareness, getting it out there, kind of getting people within trust, being advocates for it, does promote it. So you're doing super well. You, you know, you've got loads of people using it, benefiting from it, and everyone listening to this will think, oh, my God, Surgery Hero is killing it, smashing it, amazing team. Flip it. Tell us about the obstacles, the, the difficulty of getting a product like this up and running, getting it into the hands of patients, kind of the reality of it all. Because I know it's not all sunshine and roses, right? I mean, I mean the, the, the challenges are endless. Um, <laughs> I mean, for, from my point of view, raising, raising capital is the first big challenge for, for lots of startups, mm. <laughs> especially in the current environment, because you're, you're almost challenged with, almost as Robbie says, how do you get those initial individuals on if you don't have a product? 
to demonstrate yeah. the evidence and to demonstrate the outcomes and interest from, from client, clients, etc. Um, so the initial investors have to be believers in the team. Um, and that's what it comes mm. down to, I think, for pre-seed funding. Um, you have challenges, uh, of course, and I'm sure everyone mentions this, is, is actually trying to strike a deal within the NHS. <laughs> Uh, and because there's not there's not really pots of funding set aside for this sort of thing, so mm. you have to wrangle your way to, to finding a, a a source of funding to keep you going uh, and to demonstrate that you have something viable again for investors um, and and to push the business forward. You have mm. regulatory challenges. You have you've got a, you've got evidence challenges, um, and then you've got to for us continue to deliver a service day to day um, yeah. for hundreds of individuals that, that are coming onto the platform. I've got a, a question for you because you said you've got some experience in raising capital. I think that's a, such a popular question amongst our um, listeners. Some practical tips. So whether you're at the pre-seed stage or seed stage, right? How does someone go about investment? I've heard the phrase of you can't just Pray and spray, you know, so spray and pray, that's it. Um, you have to, it has to be structured, organized. There has to be relationship building. Give us some tips. To be honest, I, I want tips for myself as well. So let us give us some insight. No, I, I definitely agree with the relationship building um, side of things. I mean, as, as early as you can, you should begin speaking with the investors that you, you want to strike a deal with. Keep the, mm -hmm. I mean, we kept our investors updated on a monthly basis about the progress we're making. Um, and so then when it came around to asking for funding, you know, the conversation flowed a little easier. It, mm. In terms of, you know, spraying and praying, I mean, it, it was actually, I mean, it does for us, for us, it came down to a numbers game. I mean, we reached out to a lot of venture capitalists. We had a lot of conversations um, and it took that to close, you know, our both, you know, both rounds of funding to date. Um, but ultimately, you, it's about tenacity. It's about keeping going um, and, and, and backing yourself and, and being confident in what you've got and mm. making them believe that, you know, you're, you're going to be, you're going to make it, you're going to be successful and it's going to be big. You're convincing investors more. Of, of you, the team, than you are of the, of the product. Um, and yeah. that means that you've got to fully, as much said, fully believe in the product, know it inside out, and um, have absolutely no hesitations, but be aware of your blind spots. They're, they're going to pull you up on them and, and they don't expect you to be a perfect formed organization when you first start raising yeah. money. Um, mm. But it's about selling yourselves more than anything else. And the, the product mm. will take time. Final little tip, I suppose, is, is um, is learning learning from each investor. You know, after each pitch, what, yeah. why did that investor not want to go ahead with you? Uh, and definitely ask for lots of feedback so that the next time you do a pitch, that that that's not an issue. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. So, kind of, we know what the kind of the VCs, the investors, are expecting from that side of the table. Tell us a bit about what the hospitals and the NHS trust are expecting from you. What, are, what do they want to see from Surgery Hill to get that buy-in? What do you need to prove to them? Yeah, um, the number one thing that they want to see um, is, is ROI, really. Um, <laughs> and 
Yes, of course. You know, it's, it's kind of like a, a chicken and egg scenario. It's very difficult to demonstrate the evidence to show ROI before you've really started anywhere. So find champions who are you know, early adopters willing to work with you on a small scale. Use that to build a little bit of evidence to then pitch to, to, the, next, to the next potential client. And, and mm. just try and, try and build things incrementally. You're, you're never going to go from having nothing to having um, the highest tier of evidence overnight. People, if people aren't understanding of that, then then move on to the next potential client because they're not they're not going to be willing to work with you until you get there. Um, mm-hmm. our early adopters are out there. You've got to be flexible. Um, you've got to be willing to work on their terms. You've, you've got to bend over backwards a lot a lot of times to keep the the, the clients happy. Yeah. I don't think that's unique to, to healthcare and working with hospitals. Um, but mm-hmm. take whatever you can get early on and then build from there. No, sounds good, and and, and it makes sense in the space. It seems as if, you know, health tech is emerging. There's so many startups kind of being spinned off. How do you cut through that noise? You know, it seems as if, you know, there's exodus of clinicians leaving the NHS. Every other person is either working for consulting health tech company or they're spinning off something for themselves. How are you kind of, you know, cutting through the noise, putting yourself out there and kind of saying, we are the people to go to? I think you've, you've almost hit the nail on the head by saying, put yourself out there. We, we said from, from the off, yes, to a lot of things, okay. so whether they were s- small accelerators with, with various AHSNs, we took part in another London based one. We were then, we then stepped up to digital health, the digital health London incubator accelerator, and then Amazon AWS invited us and they're an overall accelerator here in, here in London. And then the Chicago based one, nice. I mean, that's just one example. I mean, saying yes to getting involved in uh, s- small service valuation projects and that's where you begin in terms of that evidence generation showing your economic impact showing the clinical efficacy of your product and then building from there um, and then you can have your first case study you can share your first case yeah. study with potential clients mm. and then you can look to um, apply for various grants uh, to, to do your first piece of uh, research you know going through an ethics process we now have our first rct underway we have a several oh, wow. experimental study so it's it's about taking small steps and, and saying yes and getting involved in what's out there. We're very lucky here in, here in the UK that there's so much, uh, there's so many opportunities. Uh, there's so much support out there for startups. Um, mm-hmm. You just have to uh, put yourself out there. Yeah. So, A question for you guys. Um, so you guys are by background medics, right? And a lot of our listeners, again, are doctors thinking about different roles, about the different things they can do. Can you give us some insight into, say, an idea or something that flows between you guys, for example, here, and how what each of you would do, right? How does your roles differ? What's, what's your mindset? How do you guys think? How do you guys analyze that idea, concept, research, evidence, whatever it is, and how your actions and outcomes are different, yet your medics by background? Tell us how that differs. I mean, the, the, the two of us are just completely different in the way that we work. <laughs> Um, and, and that's reflected in, in our roles. Matt, Matt is great at relationship building, um, going out there, making friends, um, establishing partnerships. I prefer to be more head down, desk-based work. Um, I, yeah. everything out. I like check everything two, three times. Um, that's just my way of doing things. And you know what? We, we each had to adapt, but what I found early, very early on was that trying to do everything to perfection, actually, you'll, you'll get nowhere. And so mm. I've had to kind of 
play towards um, Matt's way of working. <laughs> but Matt, you know, I'd, I'd say in terms of what you've learned over the last few years, I've seen Matt get so much more organised, um, so much more disciplined in being able to manage. <laughs> um, yeah, that, we, we, work, we work completely differently, but, but I've, I've certainly benefited from seeing how Matt does things. I think, Matt, you've probably benefited a little bit from, from working with me in my way. Robbie, you sound a little bit like me, uh, right? Abdul will just go out there. He's out there relationship building. He's out there talking to people. And I'm like, hold on a minute. We need to refine the proposition, right? So hang back a little bit. Yeah. Um, but you're right. But I you, think you that's a, the beauty. Yeah. It's, so, yeah. it's all about the, the, the collective. How you compliment one another? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I agree with you. And I think with the co-founding team, you need a different skill set. The, the last one or two questions before I let you guys go is, Matt, when you're kind of leading you know, a team like this on a big mission. Tell us a bit about what it means to be a leader when you have to look after people, when you need to kind of stay and focus on that North Star. Um, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I, I think for me, I'm probably not a natural leader. I'm not someone who barks out lots of instructions uh, to the team. Uh, for me, it's more, maybe just more leading by example, um, mm -hmm. showing that I'm working hard, um, I'm, I'm bought into the mission and, mm. and sharing successes and, and, and motivating staff when they've you know, had successes. Um, and, you know, I think it's all about good communication with your team rather than criticism. I mean, it's all about, yeah. it's all about motivation, especially for a small team like ours. Um, so. Yeah, I mean that's that's what that's that's what's worked for me to do. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick up. I, I think you've been harsh on yourself. I think you you are a natural leader. I mean, you don't need it in a in an autocratic kind of um, top down sort of way. Um, but I think you we're we're finding team four, which is which is big mm. for, for for startup. Um, yeah. Matt manages to, to balance all the personalities and and tease out a, a collective opinion very very well. I think. Um, and certainly, we've now got thirteen staff, including the founders, and I think oh, wow. all, all of them um, respond very, very well to Matt's leadership. So I'm gonna, I think you've given your, you've sold yourself down there and big you up. Amazing. We're gonna, we're gonna make that thirteen into fourteen arms. I'm leaving you. I'm going to work on that. Now. <laughs> I'll join you. I'll join um, you. <laughs> no, I think it. It's a testament to the co-founding team, your collective experiences going together. I feel like you're all kind of bought into the mission in terms of what you're trying to do for patients, help with this backlog of, of patients and the waiting list. I think there needs to be a lot more work in the, the perioperative side of things or the pre-op side of things, um, definitely from what I've seen when doing kind of the, 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 the surgical roles. Um, the last thing we want to end with, and it's always nice, is any piece of advice that you can give to kind of surgeons, clinicians, budding entrepreneurs that are maybe a few steps behind what you are doing um, and they want to also go and kind of solve a big problem, a big mission? Yeah, for, for, for me, I suppose, to, to those sorts of in, individuals who, who, who have a big idea or, or want to just get involved in digital health, get out yeah. there and, and speak to people who, who are doing something similar like ourselves, reach out to them on LinkedIn. I mean, you can you can... You can connect with anyone nowadays uh, via LinkedIn. So reach out, set up a call, a conversation, and and understand what what their experience has been like in, in building a company, uh, the challenges, uh, 
the rewards of doing so to, to really understand if that's that's what you 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 want to do hmm. yeah i think the follow-on from from matt's point once you figure it out figure it out that that is what you want to do then it's about finding the right thing some some people can do it on their own i think that hmm. would be incredibly incredibly difficult and um, so i would be of the opinion that if you do want to do your own thing find at least one other person who, who is aligned with your vision um, and that you know that you can get along with for the next 10 years because that's what you're hoping for really is a 10-year relationship at least mm, definitely absolutely that, it reminds me of that saying you go fast alone but you go far together right um but conscious of time um i want to say a massive thank you to both of you coming on the show absolutely. sharing your story sharing your journey i think you're doing incredible work with sergio hero we're definitely advocates for it um but it's been a massive pleasure and it's the first time we had both co-founders out of four on the show um, and it didn't go all crazy wrong anyway um, but thank you so much chaps no pleasure thank you very much thanks guys